Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer as always is Lou Pellegrino. Two guests this week, two different conversations, but you are going to enjoy them both. John Olrand is up first. He is the sports media reporter for the Sports Business Daily and Journal. And we go very deep on his story on how Fox procured the WWE and how ESPN procured UFC, whether these were good deals, what we can expect from these two networks in terms of the programming of those two particular assets. And we'll also talk to John about World Cup viewership and what he thinks of the ratings that Fox and Telemundo have gotten. LaChina Robinson follows after that. She is a women's basketball broadcaster for ESPN, as well as Fox, does Atlanta Dream Games. And she's really an interesting figure in the sport in that she has figured out a way to be a women's basketball broadcaster while working for multiple organizations. And that, generally speaking, you know, unless you are a uh, Rebecca Lobo or a Holly Rowe, you, you have to hustle, basically, to, to make a living covering women's basketball. And she does that, and she does that exceptionally well. She's a pioneer in the field. And we talk about basically what what her job is like, how she navigates her schedule, and how she how she how she makes a living covering women's basketball. And then finally, we get into and I'll be blunt: why women's basketball gets so much shit online, particularly on Twitter, from the kitchen comments that WNBA players get. Um, a lot of sexism out there. And Lachina Robinson is one of the best people to talk about that. So John Oran and Lachina Robinson coming up on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. All right, I am joined by, as I said at the top, a regular of this podcast, John O'Rand of the Sports Business Daily and Journal. John, I know you were on deadlines on multiple stories, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me on the Sports Media Podcast. I have nothing but time for you, Richard. That's it's very sweet. All right, John, <laughs> the reason I'm having you on, on top of you, you are a regular here, but you did a piece on July 9th for the Sports Business Journal that got a lot of traction within our world. And it was very much a deep dive on the quest to sell the UFC and the WWE's media rights. And obviously the UFC's media rights went to ESPN and part of the WWE media rights went to Fox. And you have a long TikTok basically of how this went down with all the power players. Really, really interesting. And so I want to talk about this story because I think it'll give listeners a background on like how this stuff comes together. So let's start with the SPN and the UFC. Overall general question to start, why did, e- why did ESPN want the UFC and how did they ultimately get it? ESPN wants the UFC because ESPN uh, launched ESPN Plus, their um, um, streaming service that costs, what, five bucks a month. And so they want to fill that streaming service with sports that have dedicated hardcore fans. That's why they're going after college conferences. Cause if you're an alumni, you're going to want to see your college, you know, and, and, and they're going, so th- these aren't necessarily general interest, interest um, sports. They're really niche sports that have um, passionate, de- dedicated followings. And they think that's going to build up their, their base. And that's, that's primarily why they got in there. What I found to be really interesting is that when John Skipper left in, in, in December and Jimmy Pitaro came in, you know, this was the deal where you really started to get a glimpse at the new structure um, that, that, that was in there. You know, Jimmy Pitaro does not have Skipper's job. He still has like the biggest job in sports media. But, you know, Kevin Mayer is the guy uh, that oversees ESPN Plus, and he's based in Burbank uh, out west. Um, uh, he, he's the guy that also oversees ad sales, although Pitaro obviously has a, has a pretty heavy hand in, in both those groups. 
But it also showed that, you know, under Skipper, they never would have done this UFC deal. Skipper did not like the UFC. He did not want to bring the UFC on. But now under Pataro, you have the UFC and then you have boxing and they're, they're getting a whole bunch of these sort of combat sports that, uh, on the schedule. And you're just seeing how a different leader can bring in different programming just based on, you know, I don't think it's necessarily based on what they like, but based on what they, they think is going to you know, bring in the most viewers and, and subscribers. So, okay, so we'll get into this a little bit. So why the difference, John? Why the difference in philosophy? Why, why, why does Jimmy Pataro think UFC works? Why did John Skipper think UFC doesn't work for the same company? Uh, well, John Skipper wasn't necessarily uh, trying to seed ESPN Plus at the time. So, so J- Jimmy Pataro sees this as a really strategic advantage for their streaming service. But, uh, but also, in the interim, I mean, it, it, it's entirely possible John Skipper could have decided, yeah, let's go to UFC, although I, I, I still don't think he would have. But ESPN went out and did um, a, a boxing, a couple of uh, boxing deals. Those boxings bring in big ratings. They're easy to sell because the viewership is, is a, a really cool demo. And, and they've been really happy with, with, uh, with what they've done with boxing. And so this, to Pitaro, is sort of like an adjunct to that, or it's, it's pretty close to that. John, one of the things we had been reading about is UFC, the sort of maybe the overreach that the UFC, or in this case, sort of the UFC's new buyers, had when it came to the pricing point of the UFC rights. Can you take us sort of inside the negotiation? What did, what did the UFC want for, it, for its rights deals? What did what did Fox, which was the the parent holder prior to ESPN, think it was worth? And then ultimately, what does ESPN end up paying for its rights deal with UFC? So the the UFC, uh, what started this whole thing off, and why why I thought this story was so fascinating was because the UFC itself was for sale, and Fox was looking to buy it, and eventually WMDIMG, which is now called Endeavor ended up buying it. And as they were buying it, there was this number that was, that was being passed around that said that, you know, the, the rights fee was worth um, like a, a grand total of like 4.5, like, you know, billion dollars or it, it was, it, it was just, it, it was a, a crazy number. I said 4.5 billion. I meant 450 million. What's a decimal point here and there. Um, and, and it just was a, a, a number that was, that was ridiculously high. Uh, and Endeavor was going around trying to convince people that that's a placeholder number, you know, that, that they were really expecting something a lot less. So the, the way it was described to me is is what Endeavor got, which is $300 million, you know, per year from ESPN, is basically, you know, it, it's not a home run, uh, but it's certainly not like a walk or, or a strikeout. It's probably like a double, maybe maybe close to a triple. I mean, they, they got more they should be very happy with what they got. And I don't think anybody at ESPN is going to take a look, look at what they did and say that they overpaid. Before we get into sort of the players who were negotiating this deal, how, in your opinion, how does Fox feel about not being a media rights holder of the UFC anymore? Fox likes UFC and Fox wanted to be in business with the UFC at, at the right price. Um, but Fox also took a, a different tact where they were tr- you know, there, there's new Fox over there now, and they're trying to seed their primetime programming instead of going with entertainment programming. They're trying to do live programming. So they they spent a lot of money with the NFL to get uh, Thursday Night Football for five years. 
uh, part of this process is they brought the WWE in as well. So they like the UFC. They they wanted to keep part of the UFC, but I think that they, they feel like where they spent their money, they can uh, adequately replace the UFC and what what they're losing with it. All right, John, how do how how important are the deal makers here? You know, it's one thing that you have a product that you want, and then it's another thing, who are the people who are negotiating the product that you want? So as you mentioned, Jimmy Pataro is on the ESPN side, Kevin Mayer, I think Burke Magnus was in your story, and then obviously there are the people at Endeavor. So um I, I take us inside like how much how important are the personal relationships of all these people or ultimately at the end of the day is it you 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 want the product you get the product whether you are friends with the people you're negotiating with or not now, you, you know one of the things that that I I've come to uh, realize doing these stories over the you know past several years is that relationships matter so much and 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 these executives when they when they sit down across from somebody, they're not just sitting down saying like, you know, this is the number, meet that number, I'm, I'll pay you. Of course, money matters, but like if you read the story, you know, the the uh, meetings would sometimes just just be gossip up until the very end when it's like, all right, well, let's talk business. I mean, you had Mark Shapiro going out to breakfast with uh, with Pitaro, and they're talking about where they lived and like, you know, where, where to take their dry cleaning in their hometown. And, and, uh, and it's, it's a very social call that eventually gets down to a, you know, a pretty quick pitch. Um, you had the same thing with, um, uh, Ari Emanuel and, and Mark Shapiro going out to, to Bob Iger's office and they spent 45 minutes just kind of, you know, talking about the price of tea in China before they came out with, uh, w- w- with the pitch. So money obviously means a whole lot, but these people need to feel comfortable with the partner because it's not just like you just sell something and turn around and, and walk away from them. This is a relation. The UFC now has a relationship with ESPN that they're going to be very, very close with these guys for the next five years. So they need to make sure that they, they know them and like them. All right. So let's talk about the UFC program. And this is very interesting to me. I'm not the biggest UFC um, aficionado, but you know, I certainly try to pay attention when the best fighters are fighting. And, and the one thing, obviously, I think, I know, you know, all of us know about the UFC is the best fights, John, are still on pay-per-view. That's still the model that, you know, the, the, the Conor McGregor versus, you know, whoever his next opponent is, is not going to be on ESPN plus. It's not going to be on ESPN. It's going to be on pay-per-view. So what is UF, what does ESPN get in terms of the quality of programming? I know they get tonnage and I know they get a relationship with the UFC, but is the deal in your opinion, worth it for them? If the best fights ultimately are still, are still owned by Endeavor. Are still part of the are still part of the pay per view model. I think you're certainly going to see good fights on ESPN. Um, uh, I, I think you know, Brock Lesnar, I guess, is supposed to uh, start early next year. It coincides with when ESPN gets gets the deal. You can be. Hmm. It's almost dead certain that he's going to be on ESPN. So I think that the UFC. Is, is conscious of this. That, that was one of the big gripes that Fox had. They, they said, not only are we not getting the, the best fighters uh, the, or the best fights, but the best fighters are leaving the, uh, you know, Ronda Rousey went to the WWE and and, and the Brock Lesnar is in and out. John Jones is in and out. And they, they found it very difficult to cultivate stars and market the uh, market, the stars that could bring viewers. Uh, UFC is conscious of that. And UFC is conscious also that ESPN 
reaches more people than their pay-per-view. They might, might make more money off the pay-per-view, but they, but you know if they have to market it well, they're going to give good fights to ESPN. And so the the expectation on both sides is that ESPN is going to be is going to get you know if not the best fights, pretty good fights. All right, John, there's no way for either of us to answer this, but I do want you to crystal ball this a little bit, given that no one has talked to the players here more than you. One of the things that I have found, and we'll get to the WWE with Fox, and that's certainly more up my bellywick since I um, you know, I watch professional wrestling and, and I listen to podcasts, and I think it's just kind of fascinating theater. It teaches you, in my opinion, more than anything else about the Trump administration, to be quite honest. Um, but um, so... The thing with UFC and ESPN that I'm curious about is how how much journalism you think will exist when it comes to covering the UFC. The one thing I have noticed with ESPN's relationship with WWE is it's ESPN is essentially a promotional vehicle for them. They don't do anything about the underbelly of 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 WWE. They don't really do any stories that would antagonize WWE management, but UFC as you know is a Whole different ball game. There's more fighters. We have seen the really great UFC press. That you know the people like the Josh Grosses of the world. They can be, you know, the the UFC has had its um had its issues with journalists, including banning them, as we've seen. So what do you? Again, I know you're not going to know this, but if you were going to sort of take a guess, how much of ESPN is going to be a promotions partner for them, and how much journalism will exist about the UFC within you uh, within ESPN? That is a, a problem, Richard, that I find to be unique with, with uh, ESPN because um, ESPN has an aspect of it that is a promotional platform. It's, they're a big partner, and, and they have shows that are not always journalistic shows, and they don't have to be. They're sort of in the shoulder programming that, uh, that, that, that work to support and try to market their programming to get more viewers, which is ultimately what it wants to do. But ESPN also has uh, a... Uh, hardcore journalistic ethos about it. And they have reporters there that I have immense respect for. And they have editors there who I think are some of the best in the industry. And so I, I just the way that they have some reporters that cover the NFL uh, uh, pretty hard, I'm pretty certain that they're going to allow people to cover the UFC pretty hard. Um, uh, if not, that's going to be a major story. And if not, that's going to show the biggest difference between or a big difference between Skipper and, and Patero. Um, and so I, that's it's something to keep an eye on, but I would be shocked if they didn't continue to cover it the way that they already have been covering it. I hope you're right. We'll see. Um, I'm a touch skeptical, but again, like you, I certainly respect the journalists there and the behind the scenes people there. And we will do another podcast, John, on where you think NFL coverage is going to go under Pataro, because that I think is a, phenomenally interesting question and again i know that don van nat is there i know they have really terrific investigative journalists like steve fanero mark fanero wada but i i am a little skeptical about what gets pursued in the pataro era versus what gets pursued with the nfl and the skipper era just given how skipper felt about the nfl but that we'll, we'll table that for now richard to me it's not only what just get, gets pursued but sort of where they put it. So I can, I can see them saying like, oh, okay, go ahead and pursue that. And then we'll, we'll give you a half hour on ESPN news or something along those lines. I mean, that's, Great the, point. that's the other way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, you listen, a lot of, I, I, both of us love OTL. Both of us have immense respect for Bob Lee, but a lot of times 
ESPN could be like, hey, you know, we did 25 minutes on this on OTL. You know, it's not like we didn't cover. It's an easy way sometimes to sort of do it. You're right. The the levels of coverage will be one to watch as well as what is not covered. And that's always, I think, an interesting, you know, when you self-censor in an organization, a lot of times that's really interesting, in, in, you know, when it comes to sort of conflicts. All right, I want to get to WWE, John, because I am uh, um, I am fascinated by this deal with Fox. Fox, as we have talked about on this podcast, John, has switched from scripted dramas to bringing in like live event programming, sports, and the WWE fits into this. They'll be 52 weeks a year every Friday. They acquired SmackDown and USA Network continues with Raw. So let's get into this a little bit, John. Why did Fox want the WWE? Why did they want to bring this programming under their auspices? This was another great part of this story to me because the the way media companies view the WWE has changed almost 180 degrees. I mean, the last time uh, WWE had their rights up, you know, they they were struggling. They almost had to beg to go back onto USA. There, there, there were not a lot of networks that were lined up to try to get SmackDown or or, or, or Raw. Um, and and they they uh, for years have been undervalued. Advertisers would take a look at the um, the big ratings they would get, and they would uh, dismiss them because they they weren't the right demos, or you know they they uh, they just uh, no part of the media industry really respected uh, the the WWE. That this this go round that changed so completely. It was it was almost shocking to me. So you, you, all of a sudden now you have cord cutters, you have people that are watching a lot less television, and people are looking now at this audience of passionate fans and advertisers want to get to them now. Media companies want to get to them now, and the WWE had people lining up. They had Fox lining up. They had NBC that wanted to keep them. ESPN made a very, very serious run to try to get them and, and get a lot of their programming on ESPN plus um, Turner kicked the tires on them. I mean, they, they did the rounds and people did not dismiss them or snicker at them or laugh at them. They, uh, they, they have proved that they bring in big audiences that are passionate and loyal and networks want to associate with them now. And it's a, it's a complete change from, from what I've been covering over the past two, three decades with that with that company. So why, John, does WWE... Why, why did the marriage happen between WWE and Fox versus WWE and someone else? Uh, because uh, Fox had a broadcast window that, that it was making available, and Fox had the money. So the WWE and, and ESPN were talking, and they wanted to make something work, but they would have to put so much of that their, their programming on ESPN+. Plus that uh, the WWE di- didn't didn't really want to do that. They they didn't want to cause their fans to have to pay, you know, an, another $5 a month in order to to see this this program because they had their own OTT service. Turner was interested in it and uh but but it was in the middle of a gigantic uh, merger with AT&T that was under regulatory review and so they couldn't actually make such a big pur- purchase. So the timing worked perfectly for Fox. They uh, for the WWE, they love the whole, you know, the Fox attitude, you know, the, the idea of Rupert Murdoch and like the, the, the Fox brand is uh, pretty, pretty true to the WWE brand. 
And so they, they liked that. They respected it. They wanted it and, uh, and, and, and worked out well. They would have been happy to stay with NBC, but I think they, they really like being, uh, being split right now between the two. So how does this one get done? Because this is obviously Fox negotiating. So it's Kevin, uh, Kevin, it's Eric Shanks, Peter Rice of Fox negotiating with Stephanie McMahon and Triple H of uh, the WWE. But also his CAA is involved in this, right? Uh, Nicholas Kahn, who has been mentioned on the show before, agent to the Adnan Verks, Kirk Herbstreet, Stephen A. Smiths of the world. So the WWE one is fascinating, right? Because it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of characters to it, uh, yeah. including. Stephanie McMahon and Triple H, who are not only executives, but characters in the WWE world. Triple H, who in the story, I never once referred to as Triple H, only as Paul Levesque. Nice. I was, I was proud Paul of. Paul Levesque, yes. yes. <laughs> well done. The, um, uh, well, that, that was also what was fascinating about this, is, is that uh, Vince McMahon has a very close personal relationship uh, with Ari Emanuel. And so he asked Ari just to, you know, to give him advice and help him sell the media rights. Well, Ari runs Endeavor, which owns the UFC, which is was also out there uh, trying to get media rights. So, so the uh, networks were they didn't want to try to negotiate with you know Ari for the WWE and then turn around and try to negotiate with him for the UFC. They just thought it was a conflict of interest, and so they they got Vince to hire Endeavor's biggest um, competitor, CAA, to to do the to uh, to, to sell those rights. And so that, that that was a whole different sort of aspect of this that, that I thought was uh, pretty pretty interesting. Did uh, how would you classify the negotiations between Fox and WWE? Were they smooth, amicable, very quick? Was there back and forth on the pricing points? When you talked to the people who were part of this deal, what did you find? Uh, it was quick. It was amicable. The uh, Fox wanted them, and uh, and the WWE wanted Fox, uh, and and the price was pretty pretty set out. I mean, if the price, uh, I think Fox is paying uh, an average of 205 million a year. And if it had gone under 200 million, it would have, they would have gone back to NBC. So it was a pretty easy, uh, easy price negotiation that happened all happened within 48 hours. John, the uh, traditionally on USA SmackDown is going to get a little under 3 million um, viewers each week. Is that, let's say, you know, we'll let's give Fox a little bit in terms of the network impact, and it it falls between three and four million each Friday. Is that a good deal for Fox? If they if that's the number they get, is this worth it for them? Oh, I think so. I th- I think that uh, I I don't want to give you a network spin, but but I'm going to do it because I actually believe it uh, believe it this time. Fox on Fox in the fall now. On th- they're going to win Thursday night every Thursday night because they have Thursday night football. They're going to win right. Friday night, every Friday night, because they have the WWE, which, which just wins the night. They, what they want to do, they, they want to win the night. So they, 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 they almost could care less. Of course, they care about what, the, uh, what, what it's going to be and, and what the viewership is going to be. But they pretty much could care less, you know, so long as they win the night. John, um, what, um, one of the things that Fox does um, sometimes to – impressive impact and other times to comical impact is they'll cross promote their products all across the different um, assets that they have. Do you expect the WWE to be infiltrating FS1 from both uh, performers in the WWE going on FS1 talk shows to shows like Undisputed or First Things First, like in actuality debating WWE storylines? How deep do you think this gets? 
100%. I mean, we were talking about this earlier with, with ESPN. You're going to see it even more with, with Fox. I mean, that, everything that we were talking about with, with ESPN, ESPN has an actual journalistic part of, of ESPN that operates uh, in almost in, almost runs independently. But NBC Sports Network, their shoulder programming is solely geared to the rights that they have on NBC Sports uh, Sports Network. And so you won't see an NBA show on, on NBC Sports Network. You know, but you, you will see EPL stuff. I think Fox is, uh, has gone more that route than ESPN's route. And so I think that that, that is almost certainly what, what you're going to see on that. And I think it's going to go very deep. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. Um, because I wonder how the audience used to traditional sports is going to react to that. Do you, uh, all right, so we'll, we'll finish up on this. Um, do you think ultimately in terms of, um, terms of portfolios, what, what entity between UFC and WWE you think ultimately becomes a bigger part of their brands? Meaning is, does UFC become sort of a pillar of ESPN or is it just, you know, it's good for, it's big for the streaming. It adds depth, blah, blah, blah. WWE sort of same question. My sense is that this WWE is going to be a bigger part of Fox than UFC is going to be a bigger part of ESPN. Is my am I accurate on that, or do you disagree? Uh, I think that that's uh, that's potentially yes. The only reason I, I say potentially is is that WWE is split between two networks now, so they kind of compete against each other a that's little true. bit. That's true. Great, um, great and, point. And great ESPN point. is going to own UFC. But I, I mean, one of the th- one of the reasons why the WWE was so hot is because of those storylines. They can control the storylines. So they, so if all if they have a champion who is not uh, resonating with the fans, they'll get rid of him and bring in somebody else. And, and everything is trial and error. With the UFC, if they have a champion that's not resonating with the fans, they're stuck with him. Or if they do, that champion could lose him the next time he, he enters into the octagon. So it's uh, um, it, th- th- there are certain advantages to, uh, to the WWE which is why their their price tag was uh, was higher than the UFC. My God, after Colin Coward has cru- crushed professional wrestling, to see that guy start uh, uh, waving the banner for the WWE is going to be fantastic because uh, you know it's coming. <laughs> um, last one for me. This is a totally different topic, and we'll end on this. And again, I appreciate your time. I know it's a busy day for you. I want to just talk to you about um, World Cup viewership numbers, which obviously your colleague at Sports Business Daily, Austin Karp, has been all over. We all expected the numbers to be down because of the time zone between Russia and the United States, as well as the fact that, obviously, the big one, the U.S. national team was not in the tournament, which means all the group stage games are way, way down from 2014, and that's going to have an impact. As we tape this, we're taping this right before the final, Croatia versus France. That even hurts Fox, I think, because they would have loved to have England in the final or even in England-Brazil. What do you make of this, John? We expected it to be down. It's down pretty significantly. The Fox spin will be, hey, we some of these games did better than we ever expected. We, um, you know, we knew we were going to be down, but you know, soccer certainly growing from 2014, 2010. You know, the backspin of that, of course, is that hey, you can't spin 35 percent down or whatever, and you're down. How do you? How did you? How do you read this one? Yeah, I, I expected it to be down. I think that this whole deal uh, it was predicated for when the U.S. Uh, is going to host the World Cup. And, and Fox got that for a song. And so this is down. You know, the Wall Street Journal had a story about Fox is losing money on this year's tournament, which I expected. It doesn't surprise me at all. 
Uh, and so th- this is a rough one. It would have still been a rough one, I think, if the U- U.S. had been in it. Um, but with the U.S. not in it, it's especially rough. But uh, but the 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 deal, if you take a look at this deal in total for for three uh, World Cups, it's uh, it's going to end up being a, a great deal for Fox, in my opinion. I agree. I think the 2026 World Cup is going to end up being one of the great sports rights deals in history. Now, there's going to be sort of a lot of behind the scenes on that, given that FIFA seems like it basically gave Fox a no bid for that because of potentially being litigated for the cutter one. But, you know, I mean, sports rights deals, John, you know better than anybody. They're, you know, they're not always clean and they're not always, you know, this this is not, uh, you know, St. Mary, Mary's uh, of the of the house of goodness. I mean, that's a lot of this stuff sort of goes down and, and, and that's the business of it. But I'm with you. I think that 20... That 2026 World Cup, which the U.S. obviously will be in, you presume the U.S. will be in the next World Cup and there'll be some momentum. The fact that it's going to be a North American bid, I mean, I, John, we, we could see, you know, we we could see averages in that group stage because of the U.S., you know, 8 million, 9 million, something crazy like that if those U.S. games get 20 million plus. I, I think that's going to be an incredible television slash digital enterprise. I just can't get past St. Mary's in the house of goodness. I'm not quite sure what that is. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I, I, I'm not. This that was an example of me struggling to figure out uh, the little sister where the, the hell the floor, I was maybe. Going. <laughs> well, yeah. This this is why Jimmy Train is a professional host and now doing it on SI podcast with Chad Finn, America's guest, and I'm doing this one. All right, John. Is there anything else that you want to uh, add? Is there anything else you want to promote before we? Yeah, get I want to promote one thing, and it's um, sure. my hometown is getting ready to host the All Star Game. And uh, and I I think D.C. is a uh, an underrated sports town, and I think it, I, I think it, it's going to show off very very well next next week, and I'm I'm pretty excited to have the sports uh, business coming to this town to uh, to show off this town. By the way, wasn't what, did, didn't your guy Mike Wilbon didn't he trash Washington as a major league sports town? If, so are you going against your beloved Mike Wilbon here, John? Well, well, and saying it is a major league sports town. That's Chicago, Mike Wilbon, not not the Washington Post, <laughs> but Mike Wilbon. Right. I believe, if I'm correct about this, the All-Star Game last year did, I'm looking this up here, $9.442 million between Fox, Fox Deportes, and streaming. Uh, that was a tight game that went 10 innings. It had a huge um, home run derby lead in the day before with Aaron Judge, etc., if I had to guess, John, no offense to DC, I think the All Star Game viewership numbers are going to be down. I apologize, but I—it strikes me that the buzz is not is not as big as last year. You think I'm uh, wrong on this? I think you're wrong, and I think you're wrong for for uh, this reason. The teams, okay. the teams right now now that are doing well in baseball, are all the big market teams. So they're invested in baseball. Ah. So you're in Toronto, so you're not getting this. But the New York has a team, Chicago <laughs> has a team, LA has a team. Uh, you know, so all these big market teams are watching baseball. Their players are going to be in this game, and they're going to they're, they're going to tune in. I think you're going to see the ratings go up. All right, how dare you knock Jay Happ? Um, yes, <laughs> I uh, I do. Th- that's interesting. You know what? I, I still am going to say it's down, but the fact is, New York, Boston. Los Angeles, Houston, they are all invested. And that was not that has not always been the case 
Um, I do think, John, and we'll end with this, it's interesting to me. I know it's on a different network, but I really think there is something to, if you get a big viewership in the Home Run Derby, I think it does help amp up the, the, the Fox broadcast the next day. Yeah, and it, I, I think last not, year it, was an example of it. It's not Aaron Judge, but the hometown kid, Bryce Harper, is going to be in it, and, uh, and he should put on a show. Boy, man, you're, I know you're an Orioles fan. We may see Machado moved. Oh, the next Mach- couple of days. I, I, by the by, the time you post this, he might he might have already gone. He nearly departed. Yeah, listen. In ter- you know, Toronto's in the midst of a rebuild, waiting for uh, Vlad Jr. and some of the other young guys coming up. So I, I you know, we're not in, we're in similar sort of cities. Maybe Toronto's a little bit ahead because I think of the farm system, but uh, it's rough going unless you're a Red Sox or Yankee fan in the. Uh, in that division. Actually, the Rays aren't doing badly either. All right, John O'Rand is the media writer for the Sports Business Daily and Journal, and he had a piece that deservedly was praised all over the place for his TikTok and in-depth reporting on how Fox landed the WWE and how ESPN landed UFC. It's the kind of stories that John, uh, he's really terrific at, and not many people do that in our space, and you have to have relationships to pull that off, and he did. John, uh, thank you as always for popping on the uh, Sports Media Podcast. You will, of course, be back. I don't know when, but uh, it will be sooner than later. And uh, best of luck on your stories today, John. Thank you. Oh, anytime, Rich. Thanks. All right, before we uh, get to our conversation with LaChina Robinson, and thank you very much to John O'Ran for his time, let us get to today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. is brought to you by Buffalo Wild Wings. A great man once said, baseball is the wings of sports. Was that great man, Lou Pellegrino? I don't know. It didn't really make sense at the time, and it doesn't really make sense now, but we are inclined to agree with that sentence because baseball is great and wings are great, and you can find both at Buffalo Wild Wings. And because baseball has pop flies and wings help you fly, maybe the man was saying baseball is America's game and wings are America's chicken. It makes sense. This is this is right up Lou Pellegrino's alley, this, this promo. So don't dwell on it. The point is we've got baseball. We've got delicious wings. All we are missing is you. Come for the wings and stay for the baseball. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. All right. As I said at the top, we bring in LaChina Robinson, who, if you are a women's basketball fan, either women's college basketball or the WNBA, you are quite familiar with her, her work because I think she works for 74 different organizations <laughs> at this point. That sounds accurate. Yes. LaChina Robinson joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, LaChina, um, I know you, of course, because both of us have covered women's basketball for a long time. And I wanted you on this podcast because I think you've had a really, really interesting career. And while I made a joke about this, um, you do have a lot of employers and it makes you a very interesting figure in sports broadcasting because you're not someone who's, you know, I've been at ESPN for 27 years and this is my only employer and, you know, I'm based in one town and that's that. So take the audience of the moment through on a regular basis. Who are you working for right now? Yeah. So right now, as you mentioned, I am working for ESPN. I have a college basketball package as well as a WNBA package. And a variety of the work is in the analyst seat, but I do do some reporting um, for the WNBA. And then I also work for Fox Sports 1. I have a Big East package that I do. Um, Lisa Byington and I, we actually call the championship uh, together and work a majority of the Big East Fox Sports 1 or Fox Sports 2 games on that end of the deal. 
I also <laughs> work for Fox Sports South, where I call all the home games for the Atlanta Dream. Um, I've been with them since their inaugural season, um, and I do that with Bob Rathbun, who's, of course, the voice of the Dream and, and the Hawks. Um, and then, there, you know, there's just some some little things that come along here and there. I have worked for NBA TV. I did their WNBA preview show this year. Um, in the past, I've worked for the Big Ten Network. Um, I've been a little bit of everywhere, Richard, as you know, but um, the, the first three that I mentioned are, are my primary gigs at the t- at this moment. Okay, so I want to know how in your position, how do you navigate schedules and how do you navigate the relationship between all these different entities? Because these entities obviously, you know, when they want you, they want you and they want you to do their games. But you, you have to navigate all this because, you know, you want to work for all these places. Obviously, this helps you pay your bills. So what's that challenge like? How's the schedule navigation challenge? Yeah, well, I think for me, the number one priority was I wanted to work women's basketball, right? And so having made that decision, I knew that my journey may look a little different from other people, right? Because say someone signs a deal with ESPN, you may see them on football or they may do, you know, reporting for, for basketball, especially at, at my level where I don't really um, – I'm not sure that I would have had the flexibility to say, hey, I just want to work on sport. Um, So that was the priority, and and that kind of got things off to a different start for me. But basically, when I started in broadcasting, I was behind. I mean, I was in my late 20s, where most young people are getting out of college right now and saying, hey, you know, I'm a broadcast major, I'm a communications major, I was a sociology major. So I was late. Um, and, and I ended up having to really reach out to anyone who had women's basketball content that I could be a part of. I wanted to grow my brand in that space, uh, you know, become familiar with the coaches and, and the players and, and really learn broadcasting from the analyst seat because I had zero experience. So that started it. I mean, I was reaching out to, to any and everyone. And, and something that's unique about women's basketball, and it's not always a good thing, Richard, is that. Um, you know, I feel like there's so much research put into who's going to do this NFL package or who's going to do this NBA package or who's going to do this college men's basketball package. Well, there's been times where I've emailed networks and say, hey, if you have any women's basketball, I'm here. And they're like, wow, that's awesome because we didn't know who we were going to get for women's basketball. Like that's literally happened to me. So because there's a lack of knowledge of, of you know, who's covering the game and uh, maybe familiarity with who the faces are once you get past the popular ESPN faces. Um, that was an advantage for me to, to really reach out to any and everyone. And it just so happened in my case that I got a lot of yeses and I had to figure out how to put them together. Uh, and as far as the scheduling aspect, you know, how it works for me is I make myself available. You know, hey, I'll be honest with you, Richard, I've never had more than a one-year deal in my entire career. So every year it's kind of the same thing. It's, um, you know, picking up the phone and saying, hey, the women's basketball season's coming up. WNBA is coming up. If you have any work, I'm here. Uh, people send me dates, and I, I pretty much plug them in. You know, I do as much work as I can, get as many reps as I can. I'm still growing and learning in this business, and um, that's kind of how it rolls. All right, I want to get into this because this this is – interesting terrain to me. Let's start with just a broad question. How challenging is it to make a career in women's ba- in women's basketball broadcasting where this isn't the NFL, the salaries are never going to be sky high, and the fact is there is limited inventory compared to 
some other sports where, you know, networks like for men's college basketball, you know, they may have 1,500 games on a year. Women's basketball, yeah, a lot of networks cover it, but sometimes they'll staff it with staffers um, calling games off screens back in the home office. It's um, I, I want to know how chal- how challenging has it been for you to make to make what you love women's basketball. You played it at Wake Forest. How challenging has it been to make this your career? I think that my passion for it is how we've I've overcome the challenge. Um, you know, in order for you to cover this sport, you really have to love it. Because, as you mentioned, there isn't the inventory. You're not going to get emails full of information. There's not in-depth statistics and post games and, you know, uh, talk shows and all of that for you to to learn from and to grow and to connect with. So it's something where you're going to have to be willing to roll up your sleeves, uh, you know, dig up information, make those connections with with coaches and, and different things. I mean, Richard, I, I can't tell you the number of events I've gone to women's basketball that have nothing to do with broadcasting, just to simply get stories or mm-hmm. to learn or to, um, you know, I mean, and, and you worked in this. It's just not available. So you have to have a passion for it because it's going to it's going to take um, a different type of work, I would say, than you have with those other sports. And so um, the good thing is that. We're seeing more inventory, um, ESPN3 in particular. A lot of schools are, are buying packages, and obviously that's a lower tier of coverage, but it's, it's women's basketball. And I can't, I can't name a conference that I, that I haven't uh, covered in my journey just so I could be a part of the sport. I mean, I've been to it being in Mississippi. I've, you know, covered games in, in Albany. Like, I've gone to every edge of the world, the, the smallest Division One school to the highest um, but you have to be willing to do that because there just isn't the money, the resources, the information. And, and you're right. Like, I am not going to get that big time here is your 60 women's basketball games for the season. And we're going to give you a ton of money. It's just not going to happen. And that's something I had to come to grips with. And I just decided that every morning that I wake up, I want to know that I'm covering a sport that I love, that I'm passionate about, that I'm making a difference in the lives of women. And sometimes I have to close my eyes and look at maybe the money that could have been. Can you make enough money? And you don't have to give us what you make per year, but can you make enough money to sort of pay your bills, to live whatever kind of life you want to live wherever your city is? Or is it at the point where you have to also do side jobs to – almost compensate for doing the sport that you love? Yeah, side jobs help. (laughs) (laughs) Side jobs help, Richard. Um, You know, I've been fortunate in establishing uh, a brand where people recognize that I'm not just passionate about women's basketball, but also the growth of women and women empowerment. And, um, you know, that's, that's given me opportunities to be a speaker or to host a panel or serve as a moderator for different conferences and and events. And I've also done work on college campuses. I have my own company, actually, it's 10 years old. It's called Stretch Beyond. And I created that when I got into television because I knew that I would need supplemental income. Um, And basically through the consulting company, I work with colleges and universities on transition programming for their student athletes. So basically preparing them for the real world, whether that's character development or career development, community development, things of that nature. So, um, yeah, supplemental income has helped because um, people would be surprised the difference in in what women's basketball analysts paid 
um, you know, versus obviously uh, other sports. How have you, um, what kind of sort of reception feedback metrics do you get on the podcast that you host around the rim? This is, um, there are not, the one good thing is that there are not many women's basketball podcasts and you have great, you have a great forum because this is connected essentially with, um, you know, it's connected with ESPNW. It's connected with the biggest brand when it comes to women's basketball. At the same time, it's also a women's basketball podcast. It's a niche podcast and there's probably a limited amount. Um, you want to give me a sense of how that has been for you? The one thing that I've always been impressed with your podcast, other than the fact that it's, you know, as a women's basketball fan, I like it, is you can pretty much get anybody in the sport, which is which is a rarity for a podcast, in that if I had an NBA podcast, it's not like I could call LeBron and Kevin Durant tomorrow and they'd come on. Right, right. No, you're, you're absolutely right, Richard, and thank you because you recognizing around the rim gave us a much-needed street cred. So. <laughs> I don't know about that, but you're welcome. Uh, but <laughs> but it, it's... It's been interesting, and I'm still new to this co- this podcast podcast space um, and how it all works. I'm grateful to Laura Gentili um, and the staff at ESPNW that they allowed us to have this platform. But the challenge is, Richard, that our numbers are never going to look like other podcasts, right? right. Um, because the women's basketball audience is very different, and it is a niche audience. So um, I, th- I, I kind of feel like, and maybe this isn't the case necessarily, but we have to continue to justify having this podcast um, because the numbers are never going to say, oh, this is that high demand. Um, the way we've been able to do that, I think, though, is exactly what you said, is our ability to get some of the biggest names in the game to, to come on and, and to share stories and to talk about hot topics. I mean, I, I can't even think of anyone off the top of my head that we have not had who is a, a major figure in, in WNBA or women's college basketball. And, you know, that access is what makes this sport special. You know, I mean... I, I may say, oh, my God, I wish we had more people. We need more people here covering um, women's basketball. And, yeah, we do because we want the sport to grow. But at the same time, one of the advantages has been that I know I can get a post game with Brianna Stewart. I know that I can talk to her an hour and a half before WNBA starts because there's not going to be a ton of media there. So for me, um, it's been great for access. But ultimately, obviously, I, I want the sport to grow. Yeah, we're both in the same boat. I mean, this is to me is a niche podcast um, as well. But yeah, the one thing that is, I think, makes your podcast unique and puts you in a potential growth position is, like you said, you know, you go down your list of people who you've had on, you can get Brianna Stewart, Jewel Lloyd, Sue Bird, Candace Parker. I mean, you're, you're Cheryl Reeve. You're basically, you're getting the equivalence in their sport as Steve Kerr, LeBron James, Kevin Durant. Russell Westbrook. And so if nothing else, even though it's a niche podcast, you're getting the best of the best in the niche podcast and you can probably use their popularity um, to help promote. So I, I wish you the best of luck there. Well, yeah. And I want to, I want to, I want to say this too, Richard, before we leave that topic of the podcast, you know, one of the challenges with women's basketball is there's nowhere to talk about it. There's nowhere to listen to people argue in long form or discuss you know, because we do roundtables and, you know, obviously there were there were podcasts before us. I mean, um, Debbie Antonelli and Beth Mullins had Shoot Around and uh, David Siegel have, had a Distant Switch podcast. There was po- there were podcasts that came before us. Um, we wanted to, to bring a, a little bit more of a youthful perspective, but we also wanted a place where people could go pre and post 
to hear discussions. Like you're not going to turn on any of these 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 talk these sports talk shows, whether radio or television or anything, and hear them talk about the game of the week in the WNBA. And, and we have to have more than that, more of that, because we got to continue the conversation, Richard. Something that's missing, and you know this. After a game, where do you go? Where you know you're going to hear people talk about that game you just saw. You're, you don't know where to go. You can read about it tomorrow in some places, but um, so that's another area or void that that we try to to fill with around the rim. All right, here's where I want to finish on, and this is something that you've, um, I imagine, have had to face. I don't think you face it as much as players do, but you certainly face it just given that you're a visible figure in the space, and that is the amount of. I'll just be blunt. It's the amount of shit that women's basketball gets online. And um, and I, I, I want to get into this because I, I'd be curious as to why you think that is. There are – listen, I, I'm not pretending tw- – Twitter can be a nasty place. All the caveats that you need, you know, and online anonymity, very easy to go after everybody, but et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But women's basketball in particular, in terms of sort of the sports in America, when people talk about them, particularly on Twitter, it, it, it seems to attract – a unique and large brand of trolling. And we have seen this lately with a lot of the WNBA players who really are getting like a lot of um, people just telling them to go back to the kitchen. You know, you'll never be the NBA. You're not making money. And it's interesting. I don't know if it's connected to the fact that just social media is becoming coarser and harder uh, within the, I mean, I'll be blunt within the Trump era, but I don't know. I, I would be curious as to what you make of it. You're a prominent woman in the space. You're a prominent African-American woman in the space. I don't know how much you get of this, but as someone who knows some WNBA players and watches it all unfold online, I know that they're getting a ton of abuse and it seems to be getting, uh, it seems to be increasing. How do you read why this is happening? Oh, I mean, that's a loaded question. And I think a lot of the points that you made are absolutely correct. One thing I found, Richard, is that um, people who consider themselves sports fanatics are threatened by what they don't know, right? And so we are seeing a growth in in the WNBA with its popularity, especially in the social media space. So when someone sees that pop up and they consider themselves, oh, yeah, you know, the basketball expert or they know about all sports and they see something they don't know about – I feel like people are threatened by that. And when they are threatened, um, they have the tendency to to lash out or to act negatively or to act like whatever subject matter that is doesn't matter, right? If I don't know about it, it doesn't matter. Um, so we're seeing some of that. But I, I think in, a, in WNBA players that do such a great job, there's, there's an article I read recently um, uh, about this. I know Lindsay Gibbs um, yeah, they produced think, an think article and talked to – yeah, yeah. Um, she spoke to Amani McGee Stafford, Monique Curry, and some other players. But for some reason, the existence of women in sport seems to make men feel like their masculinity is being challenged. And just the existence of it. And you could go back historically, and, and yeah, there could be a lot of reasons for this, right? Like, women's basketball has not been a lo- around as long as the NBA, and uh, people are still getting used to women being in strong roles in any aspect of the world, not just sport, but in business and, and broadcasting. You know, I, I've heard you talk to Doris about that. I mean, Doris used to get it so bad yep. for no reason on social media. But 
um, people still getting used to the idea that women are playing basketball, that, no, we don't want what kitchen, you know, <laughs> get back in the kitchen is what you always hear. No, you know, listen, catch up with the world. I mean, these women in the WNBA are multifaceted. They're not just basketball players. Um, you know, they, they own their own businesses. You know, they play overseas seven years, the seven months of the, of the year. Um, but there just seems to be this, this trolling, especially in the social media space. And it's mostly men who are, are threatened by um, these strong women. And, they're, and yes, you could point to the very top. Uh, of of the food chain and, and look at what the view is w- of women is and how they're not valued and how they're they are um, you know seen as um, something that that's less than what our our men are doing in every aspect whether it's sport or or in business or equal pay so I think basket women's basketball is another facet of what we're seeing in other areas of society in terms of people not valuing women, period. Let me, that, that's well said. Let me ask you this. I don't know if this is the case, but I'd just be curious to get your take on it as someone who's not only a broadcaster but a former player who played at very high level of college basketball. I don't know if I see this as much when it comes to women's tennis or some other sports. Now, I think the WNBA players obviously are far more active online than the WTA players as a whole. There's some international issues there. A lot of WTA players are foreign-born compared to the U.S., but is there something to, and if it's sort of like men who can't handle this, is it something to the physicality of basketball or the fact that we're dealing with tall, powerful women versus maybe the WTA, which may sell, not in Serena's case, obviously, but it sort of sells sex far more than, let's say, the WNBA, and does that, I don't know, does that sort of give trolls some kind of carte blanche to go after WNBA People, I haven't really sort of figured out um, my sort of entire thinking on this, but it does feel like somehow women's basketball attracts this more than other women's sports. And I, I, I'm always trying to figure out why. If it has something to do with the, the athleticism of the women in the women's game, the height of the women, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if it's race-based, which it could be, more African-American women in women's basketball than in women's tennis and et cetera. But I don't know. you have any thoughts on this, or am I – do I still got to figure out where I'm going here? No, I think those are all possibilities, um, Richard. And, and we don't, I mean, come on, you know, how hard is it for us to guess why these people act the way they do? But right. I will say um, that I think one thing about basketball is that most of the people who leave these comments, who say these things, they've been on the basketball court, right? right. They've played, whether that's just, I'm going to get some shots up in my backyard or, I'm going to go down to the rec center because that's the extent of most of their careers. But they feel like they have enough experience in the sport to speak on it. That's something that I think is different from other sports. I don't know how many of those those trolls or people on, on social media have ever been on the tennis court and, and, and attempted that. But most people at some point have held a basketball in their hands and, you know, tried to shoot their shot. And, and and I think that may be some of it, but I mean, who knows? Yeah, the irony, of course, of that is that if you were uh, most of the people, like most of these sort of average males in the country, if we're ever on the court against like Skylar Diggins or Elena Deladon, it would be ugly. I mean, it'd be jumper after jumper after jumper. 
And oh my gosh, it yeah. would be. <laughs> so you, and, you, and and let me add to that, most of them would not be able to be pat, uh, coached by a Pat Summit, you know, type figure. Like, correct. It's and, and Pat was the first person, Richard, who I thought because of the way she carried herself, the way she approached the game, the intensity in which she she coached, like men were afraid of her. Uh, you know, it was it, there was there was the sense that they were like, whoa, that woman is, you know, because it was something that we really hadn't experienced. Like, I think Pat Summit transcends sports. I mean, her approach to the business of basketball, the game itself was not what we had been seeing from women at a high level consistently up until that point. Um, and so all of a sudden you have people that are offended by her strength, by her brilliance. And why that intimidates people, I think, is where we have to get to the root of things. Um, but but Pat is someone that stands out to me as that's kind of where we started questioning the response to these women um, and how they performed in sport. It's interesting. I got to spend an entire day with Pat Summit for Sports Illustrated for Women a long time ago. This was a, truly, we, we did this uh, project where we were spending 24 full hours with the with the subject. Obviously, we went back to our hotel for like five hours. But uh, I'll always remember, Pat Summit drove myself and the photographer to the arena. And like the intensity of her driving was absurd. Like it was like, you know, holy shit, this is like the final four. Um and everything she did um, was to a dime, like scheduled everything. Like there was no wasted energy that Pat Summit had. But, and this is like a, a cool thing, because Pat Summit basically wanted to sort of do everything. And because she, at her core, as you know also, she was Southern. So she was very hospitable and wanted to make people comfortable. Pat Summit made me a grilled cheese sandwich. So I can always tell people that Pat Summit no once made me way. a grilled cheese sandwich for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> true story well, well you know what I, I i told this story a while ago and i think you tweeted this article that pat actually gave me a uh, a jar of homemade strawberry jam um, nice. my first game that i that i ever did i only had got a chance to do a handful of pat summit games but and 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 she impacted richard i want to go back to this because you, you were asking about women's basketball media she impacted my journey because I remember turning on the television one day and her, you know, when that with that icy blue stare saying, we have to get more women's basketball on television. I mean, and it almost I, I was like, wow. I mean, it, she said it with so much conviction. Um, and, and she was one that always said, make the big time where you are. Yep. So even though women's basketball has not been to, you know, in everyone's eyes, the place to be it's the place to be for those of us that cover this sport, right? This yep. is the big time. And, and and we see people starting to come into the fold, but it, it really started, I know, at least for me, with, with the Pat Summit um, influence, for sure. And the one thing about Pat Summit, and I give Oriama credit this too, he's, he's, not, he's not at the same level Pat is, but he's close. Pat would let any media in. Pat, Pat would give you yes. her time and let you inside her program because she understood her place in the sport and she understood, um, especially when national places like mine came, she understood how important that was to grow the sport. I think R.E.M. is really good at that too in that he lets he doesn't treat his players like kids. They, they, you know, he's like, you got to deal with the press. That's part of being a, being a player at UConn. But Pat was way ahead of the curve 
in terms of understanding her place and understanding how important national publicity was to the sport. The only thing, and again, not that Pat ever had to do this. You know, Pat Pat was a champion and a Hall of Famer in her sport. There's always a part of me that honestly wished that, and I think Becky Hammond's eventually going to get a chance to coach in the NBA. I kind of wish Pat could have coached one year somewhere of men's basketball because Pat would have won. And I think Pat would have made the NCAA oh, yeah. tournament <laughs> at Tennessee. And I think it would have changed the perception of a lot of people who just don't understand like how coaching greatness can can translate whether it's men, women, or kids. And she would have won. And I'm po- I am beyond positive about that. And um, and I wish that was the I wish that was the case because I think I think it would have opened people's eyes to just how great a coach she was, not just at the women's basketball level. I totally agree. Um, and you're right. Becky Hammond will get a chance to do that. And we see people like Christy Tolliver, who recently was on yep. the, on the bench coaching for Wizards Summer League. Like those opportunities going to come. And, and I think as they do. Um, a lot of minds will be changed. I mean, a lot of minds are already changing. When you look at WNBA ratings, I mean, we arguably are coming off the best Final Four in the history of women's college basketball, where the ratings were not just ridiculous, but the the level of play with the the buzzer beaters and and the overtimes. And um, I want to also add on to what you just said about uh, the willingness of the coaches in women's basketball to open up their doors this sport has so much responsibility beyond just coaching, beyond yep. just being a player, uh, beyond just being a member of the media. I mean, I, I have the honor and privilege of working with Holly Rowe and Ryan Rucco, as you know, and, and Rebecca Lobo um, on the finals. And the amount of work that they put in and, and the type of preparation uh, that they have to go through to make sure that this sport is getting accurate exposure um, is, is getting, um, you know, covered the way it should be. I mean, it's a tremendous responsibility that if you don't care about women's basketball, if you don't care maybe even about the journey of women and them ultimately getting the respect that they deserve, you can't do that job. You can't um, be a WNBA player because you're going to, you're going to have community obligations beyond what anyone in the NBA or NFL may have, because you have a responsibility to grow the league. Our college coaches have to give us access because if they don't, we don't get information at all. And so I just think Richard, and you know, you've been awesome in doing that as well. I'm grateful to cover this sport. And yes, we do have to do more and there is more responsibility and there may not be as as many resources, but at the very root of this, this is impacting women. It's impacting how the world sees women, how young girls see women. And that to me is a responsibility that I know we all take on uh, with gratitude. Yeah, that's really, really well said. And you hit on something that always, um, it's one of the, I really enjoy covering the sport and one of the reasons is, like, it is. It still amazes me that like people like Muffin McGraw, and you know, uh, you know the 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 Vic Schaefer's, the Oriamas, Pat Summits, these are coaches basically who will give you their home cell phone number. You know, it, it, just because they understand like it is important for the sport that they have that they are able to be gotten when press people are calling them for stories on their sport. It, it, you know, and having covered other male pro sports, it always blows me away just how easy it was to sort of get access to like Muffet McGraw, you know, arguably the best coach in the game and the the sort of male counterpart, 
you're not getting Coach K at his house. It's just that is just a fact. And so it's it's always it's just it's it's interesting to me, and and it always has been. Um, Lachina, listen, continued success. Um, you you really um, you have really had to me a fascinating career going because you you work for multiple different broadcast networks. Um, your grind and hustle is really impressive. People who follow women's basketball know how much you love the sport, and I think you're a pioneer too. There are going to be people behind you who see you working for these different places, who love women's basketball, and they're going to they're going to they're also going to try to forge a career in it, even though they know they're not not going to get as wealthy if they were an NFL sideline reporter or you know a pro basketball analyst. So I I, I appreciate what you're doing, and I would say keep on keeping on and thanks very much for giving me some time today on the sports media podcast thank you richard and thank you for your support of women's basketball and me throughout my career to people like you that have have brought our game to a broader audience um and have gained helped us gain traction and fans um so thank you so much for for this platform and uh for the opportunity to join you all right check out lachina's Robinson's podcast, please, and and her sixteen jobs. When you turn on a TV, yeah. you'll see her face somewhere. Lachina, thanks, thanks again. Thanks, Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to John O'Rand and Lachina Robinson for interesting conversations. Check out the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. Please subscribe, leave a review if you like this stuff on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, etc. Prior to John and Lachina, we had the media impact of LeBron James joining the Lakers. With guest Tanya Ganguly, who covers the Lakers of the LA Times, Lee Jenkins at SI, Dave McMenamin of ESPN, and then previous podcasts include Molly Sullivan, the Philadelphia 76ers reporter who um, did a fantastic job and still lost her job. So we did a podcast on what is it like when you do a great job and still still lose your job in the field. Adnan Ver, Carissa Thompson, Joe Tessitore, you can check out all the people who have been on this podcast. My thanks to Lou Pellegrino, the ace uh, producer of this podcast. Thanks to Cadence 13. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.